We good to go? Yeah. Hey. Okay, good. Hey, John. Hello, everybody. And we have another Houstonian here, so that's good. Okay, good. I'm glad everybody can hear me fine. Well, welcome to the course. I'm glad everyone uh, could make it. We have a, a, a nice turnout, and it should be a lot of fun. Um, let me just ask who here, just type up in the chat session if you know how to use it, if you uh, feel like it. Uh, who here is not, uh, who here, who, who here is uh, taking a Mises Academy course for the first time? Okay. What about a uh, second time, uh, or, or people have taken it multiple times? I know I've seen a couple of uh, return faces here. Um, yeah, John, you were in the last course, although I think you audited a lot. Okay. Okay, good. Good. Well, I'm glad you guys came back. Um, this should be fun. Um, many of you may know I'm a, a big hoppian. And what I will do in this course is give my um, um, opinions, but try to explain when it's my opinion and when I think it's a, a more objective uh, kind of received understanding. But let's go ahead and get started. Um, if everyone can see the slides, I'm going to go to slide two now. Uh, and just a, a brief introduction about me for people who haven't had a course with me before. I'm an attorney in Houston. Um, uh, um, I'm a libertarian uh, writer, and I edit a, a journal called Libertarian Papers, and I've been involved with uh, libertarian theory for like 25 years now, and the Mises Institute for almost that long. Um, I was originally heavily influenced by Ayn Rand and um, in law school, and then I worked at a, a large law firms for several years, and now I'm a general counsel for a small company. Hmm. Oh, Dante is uh, another return. I met Dante twice. I met Dante, I met you in Bodrum, Turkey, and in uh, New York, so that's great. Maybe Danny can help you figure out what to adjust. Okay, I'm going to slide three now. Maybe I have two slides, twos and threes. Uh, and so my background or my influences would be, I would say, is Rothbard and Hoppe and Mises. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm a heavily uh, Austrian-influenced anarchist uh, attorney and libertarian. So Rothbard, Mises, and Hoppe are where I'm coming from. Now, let me just go over a quick overview of the course. We have almost 50 students. Last time I checked, uh, John, do I still value Rand's philosophy, yeah, sure, I value a lot of it, although I'm increasingly skeptical over the years of many of her concrete uh, applications of her own basic philosophy. I did talk a lot about this in my last course on libertarian legal theory. I think she misstepped on her value theory and, of course, on minarchism and on intellectual property. Okay, so uh, anyway, in this course um, – but actually I think there's a lot of overlap between – uh, Austro-anarchist, uh, Rothbardian, Hoppian ideas, and even Misesian ideas, and objectivist ideas, although they use a different language sometimes, a different conceptual terminology. Uh, I might actually go into that in this course. I have a chart I've developed that kind of shows the parallels. Um, but in any case, so we have around 50 students uh, from eight different countries, which is uh, a nice diverse uh, group here. 
I hope the timing is not too bad for a lot of you. I know that it's late in the morning for Jock Coates over there in Oxford. Um, so we're going to have six lectures covering a variety of different aspects of Hoppe's thought. Uh, I will veer from it a little bit to touch on related areas, but mostly it will be about Hoppe's thought himself. And today, um, oh, there's a typo that says day. Today we're going to talk about property foundations because these inform uh, both his cultural and political and economic uh, views. So I'm going to slide uh, six now. So as for the course, for people who haven't had a course before, uh, you're, free, you're free to email me anytime at my email address, which is on this page. Um, it might be better to use the course forum if you want other people to uh, get the benefit of answers and have discussion. Uh, I don't think the whiteboard is activated, but if it is, please don't um, interfere with it here. Um, in previous courses, I had office hours scheduled regularly. I don't think it's necessary in every course. Two of the courses I did, I did not do it. I'd be happy to have extra office hours if we need to or if people request it. Um, and I've mentioned in the uh, introductory sort of article for the course that Professor Hoppe, we tried to get him to actually be a guest video speaker live, but the time zone difference is too bad um, because he lives in Turkey and at 6 o'clock at night here is, I don't know, 4 in the morning there or something like that. So we couldn't arrange it. What he could send it to was if, if the students develop written questions and send them to me, I'll collect them together, send them to Ho Professor Hoppe, and he can provide some answers to any questions that we can't, um, you know, get uh, developed satisfactorily here. Um, we'll probably do that in the fifth or sixth lecture to have time to develop the course. Um, so feel free to send me questions for Professor Hoppe if we can't address them to your satisfaction here. Um, so the way the course works, we will have two tests. You are not obligated to take them. Don't feel pressured at all. If you'd like to, it's fine. Uh, it'll be fun and not too hard, but it will test your knowledge of the material we cover in the course. It'll be multiple choice. We'll have a midterm and a final, and we'll have them weighted a certain way. Now, the way the course works, if you take the test, um, both tests, you get a certificate of completion. If you don't take them, then you're, you're eligible to get a certificate of participation, if you like. Um, and the test, and I'll, I'll review this before the test, after the third lecture and after the fifth lecture, or the sixth lecture. Um, they'll be based upon everything I actually discussed in the lectures, everything in these slides, which sometimes have hyperlinks, um, and the suggested reading material, which I list on the, um, on the course page. If there's optional reading material, uh, I won't test on that. Okay? Okay, so slide eight. Excuse me, that's an example of what the uh, certificate of completion looks like from the last course I taught. <clears throat> okay? By the way, are there any questions about it? What I intend to do today is I will uh, lecture for about an hour to about to around 7 p.m. Central Time, which is my time, um, to about an hour from now, take a quick break, and then we'll do Q&A if there's any Q&A or further lecturing. If I go over or don't cover everything in these slides today, I'll just continue next time and adjust the lectures accordingly. So any questions so far? about logistics or the course itself.
And we have over half the course here. That's pretty good. Okay, good. Slide a nine. Oh, so the, the, the primary readings for this course um, are the two books that um, are two of my biggest um, influences by Hoppe, and they're both online for free. His primary treatise, which is A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, TSC, and The Economics and Ethics of Private Property, which collects a lot of his more important essays. They're both free online. Um, by the way, I'm, so this is the – just a quick background about my uh, – influence on Hoppe. And, and so today's lecture, by the way, is chapters one and primarily chapter two of TSC, which will go into a lot of the concepts in there um, today. Um, I was in law school in 1988 to 91, and I actually started reading Hoppe in around 88. So I've been studying him closely for about 23 years. I've been a friend and associate of his since about 94, so um, maybe say 16, 17, maybe 18 years now. Um, and I've read all this stuff. This is this is the old copy of his TSC. You can see it's very – it was actually a bad copy. I mean, the, the ink is falling off. But it's my dog-eared copy, and it's got – I've got uh, almost every page has underlining and notes. And uh, Anyway, the new, the new version is much nicer, actually, but I keep this because I've got my notes in it. Um, this is my 1993 and 94 copy of his – EEPP, which now has a new edition out. So um, here's Professor Hoppe's uh, Democracy book, which some of you may have, which I will not cover this book in the class because it's not online. Instead, on the immigration stuff, I'll cover uh, online articles uh, which are available. Uh, this is one of his fantastic works. This is his uh, Economic Science and Austrian Method book, which is a monograph. Uh, some notes I have here. Anyway, it's available online as well. And uh, a lot of other works uh, I have by Professor Hoppe. These are the old paper ones I got in the early 90s or whatever. So that's just where I'm coming from. Um, so we're going to study Professor Hoppe in this course, so let me just go a quick biographical um, historical background. Um, so Professor Hoppe was born in, in Germany in 1949, and he studied uh, history, sociology, and philosophy in Frankfurt in the 60s and 70s. His doctoral dissertation uh, dealt with um, the praxeological foundations of epistemology. I don't think he called it praxeology at the time because he had not yet been exposed to Austrian economics. But his central thesis was very Austrian. It was that all cognitive processes and thus all sciences are but special forms of human action. And so he believed that it followed that the laws of action were also the basic laws of epistemology. Um, if if you, this doesn't make a lot of sense to you now, don't worry about it. We'll go into it later in more detail. I'm just kind of giving an overview now who he is and where he's coming from. Um, then he discovered the, the writing of Mises and then Rothbard, and this opened his eyes, and he became a devout uh, Austrian economist. He continued his philosophical studies, and he developed a bunch of new epistemological and methodological insights based on Misesian and Rothbardian um, insights. So you can think of it this way. Mises influenced Rothbard, who influenced Hoppe. He, he, he was influenced by both. Those are my poodles barking, and they'll stop soon. I apologize for that. So in the 80s, Hoppe went to the U.S. Uh, on a Heisenberg Fellowship, and he studied political philosophy and kept building his knowledge of Austrian economics. Finally, he befriended Rothbard and became his sort of closest protege and friend. 
and became a, a colleague of his at UNLV, where they both taught together uh, for many years. Now, Rothbard died in 95. Um, at that point, Hoffa became the editor of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, which recently ceased publishing, and he was the co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics. And then um, after that turned into the QJAE, the Quarterly Journal, he was a co-editor of that. So he's been heavily involved in libertarian and Austrian movement for um, a couple of decades. Currently, Hoppe lives in Bodrum, Turkey, and he founded about six years ago the Property and Freedom Society, of which I'm a member as well. It has annual meetings in Turkey um, since 2006. And the reason it's in Turkey is his wife is in, lives in Turkey and has a nice resort in Bodrum, Turkey, and that's a convenient place for the annual meetings. So this is all sort of non-substantive background. Now. As for Hoppe's influences intellectually, obviously it's Mises and um, and Rothbard, but his you know his, his PhD dissertation advisor was a, a world famous philosopher named Jürgen Habermas, who is a uh, extremely interesting and intelligent and prolific and famous uh, philosopher in Germany, um, socialist on politics or left you know soft socialist like most European thinkers and liberals are. Um, but he was influenced heavily by his methodology, especially his argumentation ethics, and also the uh, the work on argumentation ethics by uh, German philosopher Karl Otto Appel. Uh, he's also heavily influenced by Kant, as we'll see, not the evil Kant of Randian um, sort of distortion, but um, a reasonable version of Kant. So, the, but the main influences would be Habermas and especially Mises and especially Rothbard. So just go into that a little bit. Um, in terms of um, Habermas and Appel, uh, they have this theory called argumentation ethics, which is an, an argument that uh, the nature of human discourse uh, can be used to establish certain normative or ethical truths, like the value of democracy. I'm talking about Habermas and Appel, not Hoppe, um, um, or certain freedoms and rights, things like this. Um, now, if you ever try to read a Habermas book, and, which I have, and there, it's a, it's a little bit. Um, grab one here. This is a. This is one of the few English ones: Moral Consciousness and Communicative Action. It is a. Uh, it's wild stuff, uh, and it's interesting, but it's not very. It's very obscure and dense, and uh, I don't think it's very rigorous and not very libertarian and stuff. It's and it is not all relevant to political theory or our political theory anyway. But Hoppe extracted from it this core argumentation ethics or the discourse ethics idea, which we'll talk about um, in maybe three or four lectures. Um, but unlike them, unlike Appel and Habermas, who used argumentation ethics or discourse ethics to result in sort of soft socialist conclusions, like a right to welfare, right to a job, basically the UN charter type stuff. Hoppe combined it with the things he had learned uh, from Mises and Rothbard uh, to make it into a libertarian argument, to come to libertarian conclusions. And I think it's a powerful argument. It's been very controversial in libertarian circles, and we'll go into that as well. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Rand, you, you will have heard Kant demonized over and over again. Um, Hoppe is not a big advocate of Kant. 
Uh, neither was Mises. They both basically took some of his ideas and terminology and they use it in a very reasonable, rational way um, and in a realistic way. Mises was a realist. He was not an idealist. He, didn't, he was not a subjectivist in the sense that Randians criticized. Um, when Rand criticizes people for being subjectivist, she was criticizing what we would probably call an, um, a relativist, people who think there are no objective values, no objective proof. We can't really know anything for sure, which is not the view of Hoppe and, and, and Mises, or even the view of Kant according to some uh, interpretations. Basically, you can think of Kant as having an uh, American and a European interpretation. The American interpretation is the one Rand criticized. It was more idealist, and of course, it's, I would blame Kant himself for being obscure in writing and um, lending support to these interpretations, and who knows what he really meant. But there are basically two ways to look at what Kant wrote. Um, so one is the idealist view that we can never know the real world. Uh, we, have, we, have to, we have duty ethics. We have to live for duty rather than for ourselves or for our personal interests. Excuse me. I have to sneeze in a second. Sorry. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and there is a more European or continental tradition that interprets Kant in a more realist way. And I have a post here. If you, if anyone is interested, I won't test on this. But uh, Barry Smith, who's another Austri Austrian type philosopher, Austrian influenced philosopher, has written on this. I have a quote from there from him. There are several books and um, uh, studies and uh, opinions that. There is a realist version of Kant, which Rand would not really have objected to if she had interpreted him that way. In any case, um, it's more the Kantian terminology and framework that Hoppe uses, but in a realist way, as buttressed by the Misesian realist insights. And again, I'm not really going into in-depth lecture on this today. I'm just setting the ground. We will have a, a full lecture on the epistemology and the methodology uh, stuff. Okay, so let's go to slide uh, 14. So Hoppe was strongly Misesian, and he is one of the most um, practical writers you will read. A lot of Austrian economists uh, appreciate it, but their writing is sort of on applications or other fields. It's compatible with praxeology, but they don't really apply it and swim it and extend it like Hoppe does. Uh, there are a few that do this, uh, Joe Salerno on top of uh, Jeff Herbener, um, Guido Hilsmann, um, Walter Bloch. But there are other Austrians who don't really apply, but Hoppe is one of the strongest pure praxeological writers um, out there. So he is strongly Misesian in that sense. Uh, politically, he's more radical than Mises. Mises was more of a minarchist or a classical liberal. Uh, Although I have a blog post that shows he was arguably an anarchist. I mean, he was really close. He was a lot closer to anarchism than, say, Ayn Rand or other uh, classical liberals, like, say, Milton Friedman. He was really close to being an anarchist, um, a very radical thinker for his time. Um, he was, an, like I said before, he's an epistemological realist, like Mises. Um, now, what he did was his argumentation ethics, he he, he views that as sort of a, an extension of praxeology or praxeological type reasoning to ethics. For those who aren't familiar with praxeology, I will go to it a little bit later today and in other lectures, but praxeology is the Misesian view 
of how we understand economics, which they viewed as the science or the logic of human action. So it was almost an a priori science as opposed to a posteriori or empirical science. A priori meaning we have certain basic core truths that we know to be true for sure, or what they say apodictically. Um, we can know them to be true in the same way that Aristotle, for example, um, and by the way, this, this example coming up demonstrates how um, a lot of these ostensible differences between, say, the Kantian framework and the Aristotelian or classical framework or the natural law framework are really only cosmetic or terminological. Because Aristotle, of course, uh, demonstrated a lot of uh, fundamental truths, what Ayn Rand would call axioms, right? Um, with by showing that to deny this would involve a contradiction. So, for example, the law of non-contradiction, law of identity, the law of causality. Um, you can know that you can take these things to be true apodictically because to deny it would lead to contradiction. Even Descartes had this with his cogito ergo sum, right? His I think, therefore I am, which on the surface seems like you're saying because I think I am, but he wasn't saying that. What he was saying was because I know that I think, therefore I know that I am. In other words, even if you're a total skeptic and you don't know anything about the world and you think you might be a brain in a vat or you might be being subject to an illusion or uh, having a hallucination or a dream, you know that you are thinking. To deny that is self-contradictory. And to be thinking, you must be something that exists that is thinking. So all this kind of logic is um, is very traditional and historical uh, based. Um, um, now, so the Kantians call it a priori, and what they meant by that was it's before the senses. But they didn't mean that you could be born from the womb and then know this stuff. They didn't even mean that it was intuitive. What they meant was that you can know or you can demonstrate that it's true without having to do an experiment. Or to put it another way, you can know that something is true and you can not bother to test it because you know that it's impossible to disprove it. Uh, an example would be um, the law of supply and demand um, in economics. Some of the more positivist or the empiricist-minded economists like Milton Friedman uh, would say that you, you know, we, we postulate or hypothesize a law, like the law of supply and demand, and then we go test it. We get data points and we see if it fits the curve or whatever. Um, but the reason they do that is because – let me take a little detour here. The essential method, the epistemological or methodological method of the Misesian Austrians, including Rothbard and Hoppe, although Rothbard used an Aristotelian terminology, is what we call dualism. By dualism, what they mean is there are two realms of reality or two realms of understanding. One realm is the realm of the natural laws – excuse me, the causal laws. Natural sciences like physics and chemistry, those are to be understood and studied in accordance with um, uh, the scientific method. That is the Popperian idea that you hypothesize a law, a causal law like the law of gravity, and then you test it and you see if you can verify it or falsify it. This is the scientific method. Um, 
although as Hoppe shows, and we'll get into this in another lecture, even that method has certain a priori, a priori assumptions about the scientific method itself, for example, about methodology, about evidence, about um, how we interact with the world. But on the other hand, there is the teleological realm. That is the realm of human purpose. So when you study a human's actions or what he does and you seek to understand it as a fellow human and to understand it in terms of his motivations, his goals, his, his purposes, his means, his desires, then you are thinking teleologically. And to understand that realm requires a different set of operative presuppositions and a different methodology. So, for example, by the nature of human action, we know that when people act, they seek to achieve an end, they use a means to achieve it, and they also have different alternatives that they're available to them that they choose between. So you can see right away that we know just by what human action is that we can, we can know that humans have choice. They have opportunity costs. Those are the choices that you didn't choose. Um, they have ends and means, and that there's causality even because you couldn't act that is to choose a means to achieve an end unless you believed it could causally achieve the end. So there's an implicit belief, uh, a presupposed belief in uh, causality in the universe. So this is the basic um, way of looking at it. Action is a viewpoint, said Jock Coates in the comments here, as Murphy put it in his course. I haven't heard that before, but that sounds right to me. I mean, and we'll get into this even later, I think, in the notes today. Mises explicitly says that, you know, from the point of view of God, maybe we don't have free will. Maybe he can predict everything we're doing. But what that means in my, in my mind, and Hopper writes about this a little bit, is that you can view human beings as either bodies having behavior and influenced by truly causal um, influences or as – teleological, goal-driven actors having desires and goals. So it's sort of like when you uh, try to diagnose what's wrong with a car um, that's not running anymore. You think in certain functional macro level like the, the carburetor or the fuel injector and the, um, the gas tank and the, you know, the, the internal combustion engine, the cylinders and the, um, uh, you know, the steering wheel and the wheels and the chassis and the the drive you think in these macro terms because they're functional and that's how we understand this, that's how we made it uh, as humans. Theoretically, you could have a computer look at the car as a as a swarm of, of subatomic particles like quarks, you know, trillions or quadrillions or uh, Google trillions or whatever of these particles interacting solely on the basis of the four laws of physics, the law of uh, gravity and uh, electromagnetism and the strong and the weak nuclear forces and, you know, analyze the position of all those particles at a moment in time and their momentum and inertia or whatever and input it into a supercomputer and crank it out and predict exactly what's going to happen and try to figure out. But if you look at a big swarm of quarks, it's hard to see what the functional problem is, why this car isn't working. It's not a car anymore. It's a swarm of quarks. Anyway, this is my perspective on it. Um, I'm deviating a little bit from Hoppe here. I don't think it's incompatible, but I haven't had him heard him talk about it like this. But this is, in essence, what we do when we look at other um, humans as actors instead of as, as mechanized, basically, meat robots following pure causal laws and behaving 
instead of acting. It's just a more efficient conceptual way to look at it. But there's two ways to do it. Um, in any case, um, we do view ourselves as actors, and when we relate to other people, we look at them as actors, or as Hoppe says, as um, uh, as a person, not a corpus. That is, some some actor having personhood rather than a body that's just a, a physical meat body. Um, in any case, so what about Rothbard? Now, Hoppe is a strongly Rothbardian. He probably identifies most closely with Rothbard, although his terminology is more Kantian and closer to that of Mises. He talks in more a priori terms. Rothbard tended to put an Aristotelian um, conceptual or terminological spin on the same basic Kantian ideas. I mean, Rothbard was an a priorist, and he did use those terms. But he sometimes talks in more natural law language and more the language of Aristotle. Um, there's actually an interesting article, which I'll just throw out there, uh, by Barry Smith um, about um, Aristotelian um, or fallible a priorism. I think it's in an old issue of the, uh, the JLS or the Review of Austrian Economics. It's about um, fallibilistic a priorism. And the idea there, which Hoppe agrees with, is that when we say we know something a priori, we don't mean we're infallible or omniscient. All we, all we mean is it's a different type of knowledge and demonstrated or validated in a different way than empirical knowledge. What we mean is that we can know some things are true by first establishing a basic axiom or a priori proposition or truth by, by realizing that its denial is self-contradictory. Um, and then reasoning validly and deductively from there. On occasion, as Mises said, we introduce explicitly certain in contingent empirical ideas, and then that makes your resulting theory um, less apodictic because the introduced assumption may be wrong, but it makes it more interesting. So, for example, um, Rothbard starts out his uh, analysis, and so does Hoppe and some of his social theory. Uh, with the Crusoe society, Robinson Crusoe alone on an island, and you just talk about human action in the context in a world of scarcity or whatever, but there's no other humans, there's no society, there's no interaction, there's no economy really, um, and they analyze it based upon that. And then Mises or Rothbard will say, well, let's assume that there's more than one person. That's an empirical assumption. Let's assume that there's some interaction and exchange and trade, and let's even assume that they've developed money. Now, that's called catalactics in Austrian economics. That's um, a, a catalactic economy is one in which there's an, a more advanced market economy where there's money instead of just barter. Now, you, there can be economies and societies where there's no barter. There can even be situations where there's no other people. There's just one person or even no, pre, no people. But to have an interesting analysis that we can apply to our worlds, we have to introduce some assumptions. Um, and so those are done that way, and Rothbard does that as well. So Rothbard and um, and Hans are both uh, Hoppe are both uh, anarchist Austrian anarchist libertarians a lot more radical than um, the Mises was. There are actually some differences. Rothbard was more of an American and a little bit he had more of what Hans called a soft spot for um, for democracy and actually so did Mises. They both sort of viewed it as imperfect, but they viewed um, they viewed it as the, the move in the world in the early 1900s from 
basically monarchies to more democracies in Europe and America. They viewed that as progress, so as being closer to some kind of libertarian or classical liberal ideal. Um, and that is one view of theirs that Hoppe has actually challenged, as we'll see in, in one of the lectures in this course, with his strong criticism of democracy. Um, Ayn Rand, of course, had this problem as well. Not really democracy so much, but this sort of America worship or this founders worship or the Constitution worship, this sort of naive – well, the view of myself and people like Hans Hoppe that it's a little bit naive for libertarians to just assume that the original American founding was an almost libertarian um, society, that the Constitution, although imperfect, was close to what we really need. In other words, viewing the original American situation as a template or an almost ideal achievement of a libertarian goal, Rand was very very much of this view, um, and there was a little bit of that in, in Rothbard and, and Mises, of course. And Hans is more radical and rejects that, and I think his non-American perspective um, helps him to be a little bit more clear-headed about this. And I think nowadays more libertarians, more radical anarchists and Austrian libertarians are moving more and more in that direction um, of being a lot more cynical and skeptical of this mythical or naive view that America um, is really the libertarian country. Um, and Rothbard, of course, had a lot of that skepticism and cynicism with his um, hostility towards American imperialism and expansionism and aggression um, and his comments that you know the Soviet Union was a lot less uh, imperialist than the U.S., a lot less aggressive, etc., which, of course, angered a lot of the Randians who have this uh, – uh, they hold on strongly to the idea that America is something that you can love as a, as a liberal. As a classical liberal or as a libertarian. So that is Hoppe's sort of connection to his his influences, um, um, primarily Mises and Rothbard, and of course his his teachers uh, Habermas, his teacher Habermas. Now his important output were a few, a few books in German, which I won't even try to pronounce because um, I don't speak German. Um, these are on epistemology, anarchist theory. Things like this. Um, and then his most important work, I believe, is A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, first published in 89. And then an important collection of his essays, uh, The Economics and Ethics of Private Property, EEPP, which to more articles were added in, 90, in 2006. However, there are three or four important articles of his which are not in either of those books, which we will cover in this class. Um, he also has an important monograph on his epistemology and methodology, which I've already shown you, this one here, um, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, and um, also a very influential work of his that came a little bit late after it already became fairly well-known in libertarian circles on democracy, Democracy the God that Failed, um, and also a collection of essays, um, The Myth of National Defense. He's the editor of this one, but he's got several good articles in it. Um, he's very well known for uh, our purposes in terms of a you know, fairly uh, esoteric uh, minority political viewpoint intellectual. He's, his work has been published, uh, translated into at least 22 other languages outside of English or originally published in other languages like German or French. Um, so 
given all this background, given his heavy influence in Misesian and, and Rothbardian ideas, it shouldn't be a surprise that basically his work is grounded strongly and very rigorously and tightly in Austrian property concepts, um, realistic epistemology, and uh, radical and Rothbardian sort of oriented anti-statist politics and Austrian economics. Um, uh, I also find Hoppe's work to be extremely precise and clear to read, very much like uh, Rothbard's, um, maybe even more precise and rigorous than Rothbard's in some respects, but they're both very clear and plain thinkers, and they let you know what they're, they're saying, uh, unlike a lot of um, our opponents on the left, and even unlike me to some extent, who was quite dense to read, like um, human action is quite a challenge to many people. Um, although when you get used to it, you can learn a lot from it. Just a quick break. Does anyone have any requests or questions at this point? Because what I intend to do is speak for another 20, 25 minutes um, on this lecture and then take a quick break. Anyone have any issues or questions at this point? Okay, good. Can you hear me okay? Sound all right? Video quality okay? Okay, good. Ethan, would you turn that other light on in here, the bright light? Just one of those switches. So Hoppe's work, which we'll cover as much of this as we can in a, in a sort of coherent way, uh, has touched on uh, sociology, economics, philosophy, and epistemology. And of course, uh, libertarianism and political theory, and also history as well. I don't think we'll talk too much on the history here. Um, but let me just touch quickly. I mentioned some of this in the um, introductory article for this course, which I assume uh, most of you have read already. Um, but among his contributions, which we will discuss in this course, would be his critique of positivism, um, which, which, I've, which I've talked about already. When I talked earlier about um, the dualist perspective of Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe, this is the perspective I'm talking about. In their framework, the scientists like Milton Friedman, who attempt to study laws of economics as if they are causal laws or laws of natural sciences, are making the mistake of, of monism. Monism meaning one thing. In other words, trying to cram two different disparate fields into the same um, methodological or investigative framework. Um, there are some synonyms that you'll hear thrown around that describe this kind of approach, historicism or scientism. Um, um, scientism meaning an over-worship of the natural sciences. I think basically what happened is the social sciences have been a mess over the last two centuries, let's say. Parts of it have been good, but you know, you have Austrian economics developing, but you have other economics as well, and it's been a mess. The philosophy has been confused the last two centuries. Um, sociology, psychology doesn't seem rigorous to a lot of people. Um, and so, meanwhile, we've had a lot of successes in the natural sciences, right? We've had amazing um, technological developments based upon physics and chemistry and engineering. Um, and so, what happens is Physics as the model and chemistry, etc., gained the reputation of being true, legitimate, real, 
hard sciences because you can test it and you get good results. Meanwhile, the social sciences seem to be soft and inclusive and everyone's debating and you know, three different people have three different, different opinions. You don't know how to choose between them. You, can, you can't really do a test. So what happened was you know, at least some of the social sciences started aping or mimicking the methods of the natural sciences, economics being primary, the primary one. I mean, Milton Friedman is a notorious example of this. He's an explicit positivist. Um, now, in practice, you'll see that they speak out of both sides of their mouth. So Milton Friedman, Chicagoites, Kosians, and, uh, uh, and uh, um, monetarists will say certain things. Like they'll say, well, we know that um, if you increase the minimum wage, it will cause unemployment because we've tested it. But they don't really believe it because of tests. They believe it because of reasoning very similar to what an Austrian would do. And in fact, if they did a test and found that a minimum wage increase caused unemployment to go down or employment to go up, they would think there's an anomaly. They would check their data and perform the test again. So they really have an operary approach to things without admitting it. And they don't admit it because they're confused and they don't have a coherent um, philosophical background because they've given up philosophy. They gave it up because they think it's unscientific. So this is monism. This is one of the chief enemies of um, I don't I mean enemies, but intellectual sort of um, opponents are, are things that we credit that Austrians criticize. Um, and this will run run throughout a lot of the aspects of this course and Hoppe's and Mises' thoughts. So that's that first bullet point there. Um, also, as I mentioned earlier, he developed uh, a very unique and radical and groundbreaking, in my view, and important and controversial. Um, I'm okay. Um, I'll eat something to eat cookie, but otherwise I'm okay. Anyway, um, view of libertarian rights called argumentation ethics, based upon a combination of Misesian and Rothbardian and even Habermasian insights. Uh, he also has a fascinating comparative analysis of capitalism and socialism, which we'll start touching on next week. Um, a very provocative and influential criticism of democracy, which we'll touch on in one lecture. Uh, along with his views on natural elites and immigration, which has been one of his most controversial views as a libertarian. Um, also, his work on economic methodology and epistemology, which I've touched on. And then what I'll do is um, um, in some political lectures, I'll talk about some concrete political insights and reasons, reasoning upon Apapa. And on the economic side, some of his economics uh, work and articles and groundbreaking insights like um, uh, monopoly theory and the theory of public goods. Okay, So this is where we are. This is what we're heading towards. Um, I've mentioned already Mises and Rothbard and even Habermas, but what I found interesting was there's a book edited by Randall Holcomb called The Great Austrian Economists or sometimes called The 15 Great Austrian Economists, and the last chapter is the chapter on Rothbard by, written by Hoppe. It's the last chapter because Rothbard is sort of the, the latest in the chain of important Austrian economists covered in that work. And if you're interested, if you read through this, um, oh, I see a comment from Jock here, which term, I didn't see when you posted it, which turned me into an anarchist. What, what was it, Jock, that turned you 
into an anarchist. I'm curious what that was because I missed um, the correlation to what I was saying. Anyway, you can type it if you get a chance. Okay, right, fine. Are you talking about a lecture by Hoppe on the impossibility of limited government? Okay, I don't. I didn't remember mentioning it. Sorry. Um, in any case, um, if you read this essay, which is fast, it's very short. It's a fascinating essay. He does a really good job of putting the contributions of Rothbard and Mises into perspective. And he's a very humble guy, but I mean, he falls right into this. He's sort of building upon all this. Um, but he explains, and I'll just do a little reading here. I won't read all this. You can read it later if you like, um, and read the article itself. But I have some quotes here. But he, he explains that Rothbard was sort of the latest at the end of this. Um, oh, let me take a break here. Rick asked, are many of these arguments considered transcendental and that the opposite view undermines intelligibility or contradicts themselves? Uh, yeah, that label is often applied to these type of arguments. Um, I, I don't really know if it's necessary as a label to explain how these arguments work, but I have heard that label applied. Excuse me, let me close my door here real quick. Okay, back. So Rothbard could be seen as the latest exponent of the rationalist branch of the Austrian school because there are other Austrians who are not really as rationalist, like the Hayekian branch, or nowadays the Kurznarians, or um, or, or other. I think like uh, Wieser, uh, von Wieser wasn't quite as much, and there are others early, early on. But basically, if you go from Karl Menger, the founder. Uh, and go to I'm going to mangle this word I know, but Eugen von Bambaberg um, and Ludwig von Mises. These three are the primary rationalists of the school, and Mises sort of perfected um, and systematized uh, what had been developed before by them. Um, and Rothbard as well was a rationalist and was a critic of social relativism. So you can see this is not the Kantianism that the Rand criticized. So including historicism, which is sort of a variant of positivism, logical positivism, I mean, uh, and empiricism and positivism um, and skepticism. And then as Hopper writes, there are three things to recognize about Rothbard, and these are important. This is not about Rothbard, this lecture, but Hopper is so integrated with Rothbard's thought, it's important to be aware of this. So number number one. Like his predecessors, Rothbard defends the view that economic laws not only exist, but they're exact, as Niger called them, or a prioristic, as Mises called them, laws. And I've already mentioned this already. So basically it's a type of dualist perspective. Okay, So that is one thing about Rothbard. Number two, he's the latest and most comprehensive system builder in economics, in Austrian economics. And that tendency only really exists among the rationalist. Uh, strain of Austrians. Okay, so as he says here, while they contributed much to its foundation, neither Menger nor Bombavark accomplished this ultimate intellectual desideratum. This feat was accomplished only by Mises with the publication of his monumental Human Action. And as he writes, today, Human Action by Mises and Rothbard's Man Economy and State are the two towering and defining achievements of the Austrian school. Um, and I also believe that we need to include Hoppe's work as well. 
and that of other more modern Austrians as well, like Salerno and Holzman. Um, and third, Rothbard is the latest and most systematically political Austrian economist. So just as rationalism implies the desire for system and completeness, it also implies political activism because we view humans as rational animals and their actions and the course of human history are determined by ideas. That is, we're not determined. We do have choice, which is uh, another uh, undeniable or a priori assumption when you view people as human actors. That is the perspective that Murphy talked about apparently and the teleological side of this dualistic divide. Okay. So, to some, this is the part that made me think of Hoppe when I read it. He wrote about Rothbard. Proceeding systematically even beyond Mises, Rothbard accomplished in the ethics of liberty an integration using the concept of private property, of value-free Austrian economics and libertarian political philosophy or ethics as two complementary branches of a grand unified social theory, there, thereby creating a radical Austro-libertarian philosophical movement. And I, I agree completely with this, and, and Hoppe is the sort of main representative of that and the person who's extended and built on that and even firmed it up in some ways. Um, so basically you can think of the lineage as Menger to Bomba-Burk to Mises to Rothbard to Hoppe. And of course, this is not to slight the earlier thinkers. As, as Newton said famously, if I have seen further, it is only by standing on the shoulders of giants. And this is the the brilliance of the internet and our modern times is that we can all learn from um, these amazing um, insights that we've accumulated now that can spread instantly and for free from Mises.org and over the internet now. Um, and I wrote a little bit about this in my post, which I have linked here um, um, at the bottom of slide 20. Um, and more about Hoppe's contributions, I and Guido Hiltzmann organized a festschrift, which is a collection of essays in honor of a distinguished sort of thinker um, in 2009 in honor of Hoppe's um, 60th birthday. Excuse me. <coughs> um, called Property, Freedom, and Society, and the name was modeled after the name of his Property and Freedom Society. Um, and it's got a host of wonderful contributions from thinkers all around the world, and you can see the influence of Hoppe's ideas uh, in that book, and it's free online as well. Now, uh, and I think we will end up carrying this in the next lecture, which is fine. I plan to, I plan to do that uh, to an extent. Um, the best place to start, in my view, there's a lot of disparate aspects to Hoppe's thought. I mean, we could talk for 10 minutes each on a lot of concrete areas, but to link them all together, what I plan to do is cover first his fundamental concepts. Uh, these will be familiar to a lot of you already because they're, a lot of them are familiar or implicit or used already by Rothbard and libertarians and Austrians and Mises, uh, but Hans is very careful about picking out the fundamental ones, crisply and carefully defining them, and then actually using them and integrating them into his further reasoning as he builds on them. Um, um, as I mentioned earlier, some Austrians um, uh, just kind of touch on praxeology. They don't really sort of swim in it as I see it. Um, this is an example of 
Hoppe developing these things for a purpose. He had this sort of German precise machine gun like um, um, precision in his writing. Um, sometimes the sentences are a little long, but if you follow them, they just make perfect sense. Um, he actually told me personally um, when I saw him last time that when he started writing in English, it actually improved his writing because it forced him to um, be more clear, to be clearer because the English language is not as um, uh, it's not the same as the German language in the way it lends itself to long, strung out but logical, but just strung out sentences and uh, combined words and things like that. So in a way, I think his English writing, according to what he told me, has improved the presentation and precision of his writing. So the fundamental concepts that we'll talk about um, would be several that are related. The primary ones are action and property. Now, action you could think of as having sort of sub-properties or things that are implied by action, which we've talked about already. Conflict, scarcity, choice, cost and cost and um, profit and ends and means. I should say, I should say um, profit and loss and uh, cost and profit and loss and ends and means and opportunity cost is cost and causality. Those are all implied by the category of action. Um, I've already touched on that. I won't go into that more now, but we will touch on that again when we revisit the entire epistemological um, topic in, in, that in, that, in that lecture. Um, for our purposes now, property is the fundamental concept. Um, and then there are other things that flow from that or that are derivative of that or that depend upon that. Contract, aggression, capitalism, socialism, and even this, how we define the state. Um, this is all very – most of this is contained in Chapter 2 of TSC. And by the way, in Chapter 1 and 2, especially 2, Hoppe um, doesn't say these things are justified. He's just setting the stage for the natural way to categorize and present things. Uh, and then later on, he tries to justify it. He's being justified, but he's, he's establishing the natural framework. Um, this is similar, by the way, to what Rothbard does in the Ethics of Liberty. First, he establishes a natural sort of um, like natural ownership of the natural situation. Some have criticized Rothbard for saying if you call it natural, you're, you're smuggling in a norm. But I don't think he does because he's explicit that he's, he's not saying it's self-justified. He justifies it with other considerations later. It's sort of the natural way to view uh, the human uh, situation and the way we confront the world. So let's briefly talk about action. I've already talked about it um, incidentally. But the Hoppe's concept of action, which is Rothbard's, is the Misesian concept. It's, it's the action of – it's the idea of praxeology, the science of human action. And by the way, Mises sometimes says that economics is only a branch of praxeology. It's the most developed branch so far. Um, some people think that you could think of praxeology as a science of human action. You could have sub-branches, economics being one, but there being other words like the study of war um, or, I don't know, maybe ethical things like Coppola's uh, uh, argumentation ethics. Uh, but some like um, uh, say that uh, some some say that uh, 
economics is virtually identical with praxeology, that it's really hard to imagine. I think I think Roderick Long mentions this in his book on um, Wittgenstein, that it's hard to imagine what would be praxeology that is not economics. Uh, even the study of war, it's really the study of the consequences of human actions, just with certain empirically introduced assumptions like conflict. But even Rothbard in his Power and Market, which is an adjunct to his Man, Economy, and State, uh, and even Mises in human, in, man, in human Action talks about the effects of state intervention or violence or conflict. So they really do use their economic theories to address it. Maybe one way to look at it is catalactics is a branch of praxeology or economics, which studies the operation of the cooperative, productive market economy. That is a, a property-based economy with private property, private ownership of the means of production, and probably there being a money. That's catalactics. You could also do a barter society or a crucial economy with only one person, and you could also study the impact of violent intervention in the market, either by criminals that is, private criminals, or by the state. Um, so the way Mises defines action is to act means to strive after ends, that is, to choose a goal and to resort to means in order to attain the goal sought. Now, when I first read this decades ago, this sounded trivial or trite or obscure to me or pointless, but it's very powerful because it provides a way of looking at the nature of human action, and you can see that it's it's very powerful because it, it, it shows that we have ends, things that we're trying to achieve, that we have choice, and that there is causality presupposed, and that we use means which are scarce means. Mises and Menger and Rothbard and Hoppe distinguish between free goods, which they sometimes call general conditions of human action, and scarce means. A scarce means is something that you can affect and employ it's seven o'clock. To causally achieve your goal, you know, like a, an axe would be the means to achieve your end of chopping a tree down, or a gun would be your means used to, um, you know, shoot a rabbit that you need to eat, etc. So again, as I said, this is a teleological analysis as opposed to the other side of the dualist divide, the causal analysis. But as Hoppe says, the next to the concept of action, property is the most basic category in the social sciences. Now, this is – I'm going to read this quote. This is very important for this entire course, and in my view, for understanding libertarianism and economics and Hoppe and Rothbard Mises' thought. As a matter of fact, he says, all other concepts to be introduced in this chapter, aggression… Contract, capitalism, and socialism are definable in terms of property. Aggression being aggression against property. Contract being a non-aggressive relationship between property owners. Socialism being an institutionalized policy of aggression against property. And capitalism being an institutionalized policy of recognition of property and contractualism. Now, I know that some left libertarians and even some others might disagree with the choice of two of those words, namely socialism and capitalism, um, but that is a more semantic dispute. If we just go with this as a definition, we can talk about whether, the, whether that semantically are the appropriate words, but let's just focus on substance for now. <clears throat> and, and you can see that these are all integrated and bound up with the concept of property.
Um, I think what I will do now is it's it's uh it's 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 at the hour now. Let's take a about a, a set, it's actually two past the hour now. Let's take a seven minute break. Come back at um it's at nine past the hour, and we'll resume. And I'll talk a little bit more, and then we'll see if there's any questions. Questions to this point. I know it's fairly basic, but I think it's important to get this sort of systematically down to build on for the rest of the course. Um, any questions at this point? No? Okay, good. Okay, so let's talk about the concept of aggression. Um, so, how does Rothbard define it? <clears throat> what does Ayn Rand say, by the way, in Atlas Shrugged? Uh, she has golf say, uh, uh, no, man, no man may initiate something like, do you hear me? No, one, no man may start the initiation of physical violence against someone else. So even Rand um, had a physicalist definition of aggression. Oh, someone should post that. There is a hilarious uh, – I'm looking at Jock's funny line here. John Galt says, who is Hans Hermann Hoppe? There is a funny – it's posted by a friend of mine on Facebook. It's called Facts About Hans Hermann Hoppe, right? And it's like um, something like Hans Hoppe could beat Chuck Norris. I mean, it's just funny. Hans Hoppe eats performative contradictions for breakfast, etc. Anyway, uh, so Rothbard defines aggression this way. The libertarian creed rests upon one central axiom. And by the way, you can see he's using Randian language here, an axiom, sort of Randian language. Uh, anyway, that no man or group of men may aggress against the person or property of anyone else. This could be called a non-aggression axiom. And by the way, most libertarians now that I've noticed, and I, I try to do this in Walter Block, etc., we call the non-aggression principle, not the non-aggression axiom, because axiom is too um, – uh, well, it's it's used in different ways, and it, it's, a, it's a loaded term, and I don't think it's an axiom. I think it's a principle. It doesn't self-justify. You have to justify it in another way. Anyway, aggression is defined as the initiation of the use of the threat of physical violence against the person or property of anyone else, or you can say it's synonymous with invasion. But to invade means to cross the borders of something, right? to go through something, to go into the property of someone else. You could also say it is the use of someone's property without their consent. Okay, I'm not going to read all this. You can look on page 26 for more. Um, it's basically elaborations on um, how he defines aggression. The standard libertarian way to invade or to use or to initiate force against the person or property of someone else. But of course, aggression is not primary for libertarians. Um, it is a consequence of a view of property, and the reason is – just here's a, qu a quick example, page 20, slide 27. Um, if I take a watch from you, it's aggression if it's yours, but it's not aggression if it's mine. So initiation of force sort of has packed into it that idea that 
um, it's really the use of someone's property without their permission. Um, I think it's the reason we say that is we're thinking of the standard paradigmatic example of a physical fight between two people. So the only property you're thinking about is the property of the bodies. So there's a presupposition there that A and B each own their bodies, and that the guy who initiates it, that means he starts it. He, he hits the other guy for no reason. Okay. Now, we're assuming that he's not invited to hit him, like in a boxing match or in a wrestling match or something like that, right, or a friendly, friendly wrestling or whatever, because that, that wouldn't be initiating it or that would be invited. We're assuming that it's not consented to. And the, so the, the very concept of initiation of force is centered around this idea of two body owners, one of which uses or invades the, bar, the borders of the other without his consent. Um, but you can see that that's based upon the presupposition of property and the body. And the same is true with all other forms of, of aggression, which uh, I just mentioned, like theft or, or, or rape or kidnapping or murder or assault and battery, um, etc. So again, the topic says here, this is a little bit redundant with the earlier quote. If an action is performed that uninvitedly may see, here's the consent part. If you consent to someone touching your body, it's not aggression. You consent to it. This is based upon the property idea that the owner of a resource, a scarce good, including your body, is the one who gets to consent or not consent to someone using that. So that is why if you kiss a girl who consents to it, it's not aggression or assault. But if you kiss a girl who doesn't consent to it, it's assault or battery actually. So it's all dependent upon the permission of the owner. The owner is the one who has the right to consent or not consent. Okay. So as Hoppe says, um, if an action is performed that uninvitedly invades or changes the physical integrity of another person's body and puts it to a use that is not to his liking, that's called aggression. Now, why do we say uh, change the physical integrity of? This all gets down to what Rothbard talks about is the relevant technological unit. That is how you define the unit and the way in which you own a given resource and the extent to which it extends. As we'll talk about later, Homesteading doesn't extend forever. You can't step on a virgin continent and homestead the whole thing. We have to figure out how much you homesteaded, how much you've used. And your rights don't extend to infinity. They only have a certain border, a certain boundary that other people can observe and avoid if they want to avoid this, right? So the idea of aggression is if you own property that's defined – you are the one who gets to decide whether someone else can use it or not. But that means someone else cannot use it without your consent. But to use it means to alter its physical integrity in some way that prevents me from using it because this is where the entire concept of property comes from, from scarcity, from the possibility of conflict. Now, I'll get to this in a second. Um, Okay, so I've talked about this already. I'm not going to read this quote again, but basically he's talking about how property is the most basic concept, and all the other most fundamental concepts are derived from it. Okay, so let's go to slide 28. Here's, the, here's where scarcity comes in. To develop the prop concept of property, it is necessary for goods to be scarce. 
so that conflicts over the use of these goods can be possibly arise. It is the function of property rights to avoid um, such possible clashes over the use of scarce resources by assigning rights of exclusive ownership. So this is what property is. It's the assigning, the assigning of an exclusive ownership right or control right over a scarce resource. So it's thus a normative concept, norms. These are rules that people should follow. A concept designed to make a conflict-free interaction possible by stipulating mutually binding rules of conduct or norms regarding scarce resources. Let me go to the next page real quick. Uh, yeah, he has this here. I'll, I'll save this for a second. So um, you can think of scarce resources even in the Garden of Eden, okay, where there's super abundance. There's no – there's plentifulness of everything. Even your body, in a, in, a, in a real estate example, even your body and time and your standing room, those are still scarce, and conflict would still be possible. And in fact, as Hoppe argues, and as we'll talk about in the argumentation of this lecture, human bodies are the prototype and the basis of all property rights and external objects, external resources. So as Hoppe says, um, even in like a paradise, uh, which we sometimes call the Garden of Eden, or sometimes it's called – this is a German word Hoppe uses. Um, uh, I won't even – well, I'll try Schlaraffenland or something like that, or the land of cocaine or cocagne or something. Um, these are these mythical ideas of these lands of super plenty or super abundance. Even every person's physical body would still be scarce, and you would still need property rules regarding people's bodies. You're not used to, people are not used to thinking of one's own body as a scarce good, but imagining the most ideal situation you could ever hope for, the Garden of Eden, it becomes possible to realize that one's body is the prototype of a scarce good for the use of which property rights, which are rights of exclusive ownership, somehow have to be established in order to avoid clashes. So this is where scarcity plays the key role in what property is. Okay. Now, as I, as I noted before, Hoppe's original case or his initial case, like in Chapter 2 of TSC, is only descriptive. It's not normative. He's just setting out a categorical framework to analyze uh, the human condition. Um, it seems best to start with one's analysis of the property norm, which would most likely be accepted by the inhabitants of Eden as the natural position. So he's calling it the natural position. Uh, at this stage, we're not concerned with ethics yet. That is justifying these norms. Okay, so he said he's going to later argue this. See, he admits it right here. This is how a really clear and honest thinker will do this. He says natural doesn't have moral connotations. It only means it's a social socio-psychological category used to indicate this position would probably find the most important public opinion uh, initially as a way to, to describe the human condition. Okay, And what he says is the naturalness of this position is reflected in how we talk about our bodies. It's almost impossible to avoid using possessives like saying my body, etc., um, or my actions even. And, and, and also – and I, I've, mentioned, I've mentioned this before, and I, I've, uh, you know, even, even dogs know what theirs is. I mean if one dog is munching food from a bone… And another dog approaches them, 
the first dog starts growling, like, back off, this is my property. I mean, the, pro the concept of property is not hard to see and recognize. It's very intuitive. All normally functioning humans can recognize it easily. Um, so the question is not one of its naturalness. It's one of justifying it. Okay? So Han Papa concisely defines here <laughs> – Papa concisely defines here what the, what the basic libertarian rule is, the natural position. What is it? The rule is this. Every person has the exclusive right to own his body within the boundaries of its surface. Every person can then put his body to those uses that he thinks best for his immediate or long-run interest, well-being or satisfaction, as long as he does not interfere with another person's rights to control the use of his or her respective body. Now, this seems like a, a sort of a retread of the basic libertarian idea of mutual respect for rights, but it's done in a very precise way that links in scarcity, property, and the fact of human bodies and the fact of conflict. Slide 32. Okay, now, so let's get to some of the other concepts, um, the other – a little bit more um, – subsidiary concepts that are fundamental but derivative and built on contract uh, – sorry, property. So contract is an important one. Now, we will discuss this as well a little bit, not too much. I discussed this in great deal in my Libertarian Legal Theory course where I talked about the uh, Rothbard Evers title transfer theory of contract, which I adhere to and which Hoppe does as well. This is a different view of contract than you will normally hear talked about. Normally people think of contract as you make a promise in a certain way with certain formalities or certain manifest intentionality that is binding. Now, what does that mean? People are not really precise because they're not lawyers. When they think about this, they say, well, it means you have to do it. Well, what does that mean? It means there's consequences if you don't. Well, you know, there's consequences for lying to your mother too. So you have to really make this more precise. The Rothbardian view which he actually started, and Evers built on it, and Rothbard built back on it, and I've written a good deal on it, and Hoppe has integrated it in his theory. The idea is that contract is nothing but uh, the assignment of titles to owned scarce resources by the owners by making some kind of uh, sufficient communication or manifestation of their intent to transfer the ownership. So it's not a promise to do something. It's not a binding promise. It is just a way of transferring title to owned things. And this is implied by the right to own, as Hoffa says here. Okay? And I've got some links here, some more on this if you want to follow it up. Okay. So if you Use someone's property without their permission, we call that aggression, right? Now, Hoppe says socialism must be conceptualized as an institutionalized interference with or aggression against private property or private property claims. Now, this is not the standard definition. Let, let's forget the leftist um, complaint, which to be honest, I reject, um, that socialism is libertarian or that Libertarians should, word, should use the word socialism. The word socialism has a connotation now which refers to certain um, statist 
systems which are clearly unlibertarian. So I'm going to take that as a given for now. I totally disagree with the idea that we can use the word socialist to mean libertarian. It's just it's been lost, and it, well, we never had it, and it can't be reclaimed. Um, uh, more controversial or less defensible would be Hoppe's turning socialism to essentialism. In other words, the classical libertarian or conservative even definition of socialism would be state or centralized control of the means of production, the factories, the, the capital, the equipment. Um, but, but what Hans does is, as a good Austrian, he recognizes that there's no clearly human action or praxeological or economic reason to classify scarce means differently, at least from a fundamental level. I mean, your body is a scarce resource, uh, consumer goods are scarce resources, your car is a scarce resource, your house is, factories are, roads are, whatever. Um, so what he does is he generalizes the concept of socialism and he says, what's the common normative or libertarian problem with standard socialism? It's not just that the state controls the means of production. It's basically an act of institutionalized aggression or violence against private property claims. True, standard socialism talks about the state invading the property rights in, of, the, of the capitalists. But Hoppe says that, look, it's a general problem. It's bad whether, you, whether the state takes my body or a factory or my money or my property or whatever. So he's generalizing the common defect of socialism, and that is it's institutionalized aggression. So this is how we can think of socialism as institutionalized aggression, as contrasted with private criminality, which libertarians also oppose. Right? So we have private criminals and we have public criminals, you can think of them. So by this definition, every state is socialist, and every socialism requires a state. It's a way of describing what the state is and what the state does, because they are both in basically institutionalized. That is, there's a, there's a recognized institution or agency that commits this aggression in a concerted fashion. Even a mafia could be socialist in the sense, except the difference is the mafia is not seen as legitimate, while the state is seen as legitimate. Okay? And capitalism, now, he's using capitalism in the sort of Randian sense as a synonym for a free market libertarian economy in which private property rights are respected. Um, I mean, in the last 10 years or so, I have tended to try not to use capitalism as a synonym, partly because so many left libertarians have muddied the waters and fought hard to take this term away. Um, I do understand why the word capitalism is used as a synonym for a free market, and I believe it's it's basically the concept of metonymy, right? If you uh, let me type it here for people who don't know this word, metonymy is referring to um, something indirectly, like uh, when you say someone drinks, you say they're hitting the bottle. Not, they're not really hitting the bottle, but the bottle is associated with the liquor inside of it, etc. So that's metonymy. So in a free market, in an advanced, prosperous Western free market economy, you tend to have 
capital accumulated and owned privately. So that's one important feature of an advanced economy that will prosper in a free market. So it's of course not associated with, with capital, we call capitalism. But again, that's just semantics. So we can distinguish basically between a society in which there's an institution which systematically invades private property rights, in particular capital, and a free market in which there is a widespread recognition of the soundness of property rights, and there's a free market that arises naturally because of that. Okay. Um, we're getting near the end here. I know that we have people in other countries, and what I learned from my last courses is that um, although I don't mind staying even another hour if people want me to, um, it gets to be a problem for people that are up late and they're counting on going to bed not too much later. So I'm going to cut this short in a couple of minutes, and I'll take some questions. In fact, I think we're almost done. So I'll go five more minutes because I started a little bit late. So let's cover a couple more concepts, and we've got this lecture almost completed, and I'll finish it up next time. Okay, so homesteading. Let's talk about homesteading. This is a Lockean concept, which is heavily integrated by now into Rothbardian and libertarian ideas and Hoppian ideas. So according to Hoppe, homesteading would be the assignment of ownership based upon the existence of an objective or as he calls this is Kantian terminology, intersubjectively ascertainable. Basically means objective. An objective link between the owner of the property owned and of calling all property claims that can only invoke purely subjective evidence in their favor aggressive. In other words, by the way, the word mutatis mutandis, I, I saw this the first time, I'll be honest, when I read Hoppe's book 20 years ago. It just means um, making the, the necessary changes to the next argument, but don't worry about it if you don't know it. Um, what he's saying is that if you make a merely verbal decree or if you make an assertion of ownership that is not backed by any objective link if, and then you try to enforce that, that's aggression. So if I say, um, you know, I want this woman's body because I want it and I you know, commit aggression, that is aggression. Because I'm just basing it upon my desire or my arbitrary decree that I should have her. Um, whereas if I say I should keep this, um, I should keep this apple because I am the one who plucked it from the tree. I put it in my bag. I possessed it. I homesteaded it. I have the best claim to this apple because I'm first. If someone takes it from me, they're stealing my apple. I have the better claim because I have the apple first, and I have a link to it. That is the basic um, idea. So what I what I got from Hoppe is his important contribution is he really focuses on the fundamental nature of what homesteading does, which Locke sort of you know weaves and dodges, and he's not real clear on. But Hoppe thinks it's basically in bordering. So the, the criteria is we have an unowned resource. This is important. It will come up later in the analysis of body rights versus other rights. We have an unowned scarce resource, and the first person to homestead it emborders it. He does something with it that puts up visible objective 
determinable borders that other people can see so they can avoid trespassing if they choose to be civilized. This can be done by putting a fence up around attractive land, building a garden, building a home, uh, taking the apple, putting it in your bag. All these things are ways of manifesting and showing to others that I am claiming this. I have a connection to it. I'm first. I'm before you. You know, back off. Respect my respect my property. Okay, we are a little bit past time. What I think I will do is I will stop now, and I will be happy to take questions for a little while if there are any. If not, we'll pick up next week, and I will post uh, tomorrow. Let me let me tell you really quickly. Uh, we're going to continue this lecture. Let me go to the last lecture. Um, so we'll talk. We'll, next time we'll talk about um, classifying types of socialism. So if you want to read up on this, read the, the following um, three things. Well, chapters three through six of TSC and the Banking and Nation States article, which is in his EEPP book, and also the article I hyperlinked here, Desocialization in a United Germany. So that'll be the background for next week's lecture. Um, I stopped at page 34. So, any questions, comments, requests, quizzes, bunch of difficulty, confusions? Okay, so Jock. Um, Jock says he he get, he has problems when he talks about self ownership because they they said it implies a split between mind and body. Um, I mean, look, I get this all the time too, and I, I'll be, I'll confess I'm totally um, mystified by this complaint by libertarians. Um, I wrote um, uh, an article about intellectual property for Liberty Magazine, and Leland Yeager, who is a um, quasi Austrian, mostly libertarian atheist wrote this letter just attacking me because he thought that um, um, saying we're self-owners implies that you're a theist or something because I guess he's thinking it implies that you believe in a, a, a soul versus the body, etc., which I actually don't. I'm actually um, I'm actually a free thinker um, like, like Jaeger. I'm just not hostile and hair-trigger like he is. Um, I think it's a failure to be, met, to, to be a dualist. The Misesian idea is that you can view a human as a human actor performing actions, having a personality, or you could view him causally as just a body, a, a composition of quarks operating in accordance with causal laws. So it depends on how you're looking at them. It depends on which realm you're analyzing. But um, I think it's ridiculous to not recognize that there's a conceptual validity to, for example, the concept of mind. Um, what I tell some people sometimes, and sometimes it, it works, is that if you, um, if you uh, have a problem with your brain and you have brain surgery, you're not having mind surgery. You're having brain surgery. Um, or, or if you change your mind, would someone say you're changing your brain? I mean, these are conceptually different things. To, to admit that they're conceptually different doesn't mean that they're not related. It doesn't mean that you're uh, religious even or mystical. 
Um, for example, if you go jogging, you're running. Your body is running, but your body is not equivalent to running, right? It's a body that is doing running. Um, the other thing is ask them if someone dies and they have a, there's a dead body in front of you, does it have a brain and does it have a mind? And it seems clear to me that it has a brain, but it doesn't have a mind because the brain is dead. And that makes it clear that the mind is something that flows from or comes from a living brain, but it's not the same as it. It's a phenomena of it. You can call it an epiphenomena. You can call it um, an activity of it. I don't care. I don't think it matters. I think that the fundamental question is I can identify a resource called my body, and the question is who gets to use it? Who gets to decide who gets to use it? Is it me or someone else? And I agree with you completely. Either I own it or someone else owns it. I think they're afraid that you're trying to do an equivocation. You're trying to sneak in an assumption, some some mystical or religious assumption of a soul or something like that, which you're not at all. So I would just say, look, it has nothing to do with religion. You can, you can have this view whether you're an atheist or whether you're religious. The, basically, you're answering the question, who gets to decide who uses my body? Is it me or someone else? Um, Carl asks, do they think God owns the mind? Well, I actually do think that um, a lot of religious people do believe that God is the ultimate owner of the universe. And um, um, I think that that is not easy to rebut if you believe in God. I mean, but it's sort of irrelevant because the questions that we ask are not what God is right to do. If you're religious, you're not going to ask what is God entitled to do because you believe he's a source of goodness and he can do whatever he wants. We're always asking social questions about what can fellow humans do. So even if you're religious, you can believe that God has some fundamental base ownership of all of us but has granted everyone autonomy. And with respect to you and me, I'm the one who owns my body. That means I get to say who, owns, who, who, who can use my body, not you. Because God is not you. God is not operating through you. So I don't think God really is a problem um, for this uh, one way or the other. I, I agree, Jock. I think the anarcho-socialists do this. And, and you're, you are a good left libertarian who doesn't fall for – uh, a lot of the uh, excesses, right, of the of some of these guys. Um, so they are just they hate the concept of property. Um, they believe in this Marxist nonsense about alienation, and uh, uh, they have crankish economic views on value theory and economics, even ownership of land. One of the best ancient, uh, older libertarians was Benjamin Tucker. He was great on everything. Except – and he identified four monopolies, I think IP or patents um, and um, and land. And even his criticism of land had some good points because he was pointing to the historical way it was tainted by the state's involvement. But he was a little bit too leftish or – I don't know if it's George's or what, but um, anyway. Yeah, tariffs was the one. Money, tariffs. Patents and land, and he was good on three out of four, and he was half good on land, but he wasn't quite where we are. I 
modern libertarian. Uh, Dante asked about whether Hoffa has corrected Rand's ideas on Kant. Well, I here's here's the thing. I think that even Hoppe admits that there are some uh, Hoppe's um, I'm sorry, Kant's own wording has given um, has led to some people interpreting him in an idealist way. So there's some justification for criticizing the idealist interpretation of Kant, and there's some justification for blaming Kant for this. Um, and Hoppe, I think, admits this. Um, but I think he's also right that I don't think we can really know exactly what Kant meant. <laughs> he's kind of obscure. But I don't think that's Randian's complaint about Kant, that he was obscure. In fact, on politics, he was pretty libertarian. Kant was actually pretty classical liberal on his conclusions. Um, but yes, I do think that he has shown that there is a charitable and reasonable and realistic way to use the a priori Kantian Misesian framework, especially as interpreted by Mises, to have a realist view of the world, which is perfectly compatible with objectivism. Hoppe has a um, uh, a comment in one of his articles. I think it's in uh, I think it's in this book, the uh, Economic Science and Austrian Method, where he cites um, a review by I think Bernard Goldberg, no some Goldberg, um, of um, of um, of Ayn Rand's what he called ignorant views of Kant. And I agree with that. I think Rand was brilliant in a lot of ways, but I think she was operating on a lot of assumptions and secondhand reading. And she just took this idealist, subjectivist, relativist version of Kant and just went completely crazy with it. And you know, most of her criticisms of that are right. I think it's mostly a straw man, though. And that's my opinion. Okay, I'm reading this question by Edward Dim. Give me a second. Well, okay, so you're asking about how would Hoppe categorize voluntary socialist communities like monasteries, etc. Uh, are they capitalist? Um, I don't know if I've read much from him on those kinds of things, but he has talked about the family, and he's, he's addressed this similar idea that, well, let's say you have a family, and the family is can be looked at in many ways. Like you have a father, a mother, some kids. In a way, they co-own all this property. There's a, there's a monarch at the head, or maybe it's communistically decided among the older versions of the, the older members of the family. And of course, um, it's sort of an instance of socialism that can work in a very, very small group where the calculation problem that Mises identified doesn't really get too much out of hand. Um, or, as Hoppe says, I believe, and we'll study this more when we talk about the um, cultural elites and democracy uh, and immigration issues, um, I believe his view is that um, the family unit is based upon private property. In 
other words, you couldn't have a family unit or, or a group like you're talking about, a monastery, without a, a background presupposition of, of private property. So there's private property. It's used collectively uh, by a group of people according to a certain contract. Stephen says – Stephen Davis um, – oh, well, okay. So uh, Hinankana, I think you're in India, right? Um, he says Rothbard said you can't con contract yourself into slavery. Um, I actually don't know if we'll get to that because that's not really a big issue Hoppe covers. I covered it in my Libertarian Legal Theory course, but um, that is a consequence of his contract theory, um, and I've written on that in – if you go to my – StephanGinsella.com page, um, I've got two or three articles on inalienability, which I discuss in detail Rothbard's view here. I think his conclusion is right. I think his reasoning is a little bit confused. It actually contradicts his own um, contract theory. Uh, Stephen Davis says, um, what about other philosophies that apply the term aggression and violence to formulate property definitions? Well, I'm not sure which one you're talking about. However, I have heard many times um, in law school and discussing with non-libertarians, they basically are much fuzzier or squishier with their definition of aggression. So they'll say like um, um, there's a concept in the law of economic coercion. So you know, if you want an iPod really badly and I offer it to you, but I say I'm the only supplier, but you have to pay me $700 for it. I'm economically coercing you. Okay. Now, so they basically extend the idea of coercion. They're not rigorous about it. They don't anchor it in terms of property rights. The Hoppian, the Rothbardian, would say, "Look, who owns the property? If they don't, if they're not entitled to it. Then it's not coercion or aggression." So I think they use aggression. They basically smear the concept out and extend it to things that are not actually violence and physical aggression. Um, and that's the problem. So yeah, they do do that, and they use that illegitimately to try to justify socialist policies. Norm Pedersen, is the property tax aggressive by Austrian definition or only if it's overly – if it's too, too excessive or rather than contractually agreed upon? Well, yes, um, by the Austrian – well, I wouldn't say Austrian. Austrian is, is, is really – if you mean Austrian economics, they're sort of neutral on uh, normative and ethical issues like taxes, although they tend to be in their private capacity free market tax, but not all of them. Um, but the Austrian libertarians tend to be radicals and mostly anarchists, and of course all taxes are – um, or aggression because it's theft of property. Now, if it's contractually agreed on, we wouldn't call it a tax. It would just be um, a contractual royalty or whatever you want to call it. I mean, if you want to agree to pay someone, then it's, it's agreed to. It's not a tax. It's just an exchange. Jock, I don't know what Latifundia is.
I think let me do this now. I'm happy to stay longer, but from this point forward, it's uh, 48 past. I'm not going to include anything substantive here that will be on the test. So if anyone needs to leave, feel free to leave. Um, but I'll be happy to talk further in a sort of informal fashion here. Night, John. Uh, Marcos Hernandez asked about price gouging. Um, that is correct. The price can never be um, considered to be price gouging. It's just a consequence of who owns something. In the, in the law, that's sometimes called a contract of adhesion or a flypaper contract. The idea is that you imagine there's a piece of flypaper that's sticky and like the fly is attracted to the flypaper. People are helpless. You know, um, uh, customers of some company, and they have no choice but to agree to this deal because it's take it or leave it. And under the doctrine of economic coercion that I mentioned, the law will sometimes void these kind of contracts. Now, a lot of these contracts actually blend into um, there's not true meeting of the minds, or there's some kind of other coercion, or there's uh, some kind of quasi fraud going on. But in theory, in principle, in the edge cases, there should be no such thing as price gouging. Edward says, is ownership exclusive to one person? Um, is there any way to conceptualize co-ownership of a resource? Well, I'll, I'll give you my view and Hoppe's view. Hoppe's written on this um, only a little bit. He said that you know, e even if you have co-ownership, that means each person is the 100% owner of their part. So if they have two 50% owners of a car that each one owns half the car. Um, I don't know if you have to think of it that way. I mean, I, I, the way I think of it is there's a blending of contract and property. So if A and B co-own a car, then to the outside world, they are the owners. But between themselves, they have a contract that says which one gets to use it on which days, excuse me, or whatever. In fact, this happens all the time. I had a friend who had a one-third interest in an airplane with a friend, and he got to use it one out of every three weekends, and the other guy got to use it on the other two out of three weekends. So to the outside world, they're co-owners, and if they can't come to an agreement so the outside person doesn't know who to trust or who to believe, then they're, they have a stalemate, and presumably their agreement would give them a way to settle the dispute and to separate their ownership, sell it, split the money, something like that. But co-ownership, to my mind, is not a special problem. Uh, at all. And in fact, Hoppe writes in one of his recent articles on my journal, libertarianpapers.org, look in the first article of this year, 2011, um, he talks about how there could be easements homesteaded. So you can imagine a village coming, coming, coming up where all the villagers have the right to cross this land, or they do, they cross this land regularly to get to the river or whatever. And eventually someone builds a road, and someone builds a building, and they start homesteading it. But they homestead it subject to the easement or the right of use, the right of crossing, the right of way that was already homesteaded by use earlier. So in that case, you would say, well, A owns a, a tract of land, Black Acre we can call it, and a house, subject to the right of the villagers to cross it on the corner to get to the river. So in that case, they were all co-owners of the land, but in different respects, something like that. 
Any more questions? Um, Mr. Is it Mrs. Tana asks about is it natural to lose ownership of a property? Certainly, I think abandonment uh, is specifically contemplated. Um, abandonment of property is just the reverse of acquiring property by homesteading it. Um, homesteading requires not merely possessing something, but possessing it with the manifested intent to own it as owner. That's to retain title to it. So if you lose that by abandoning it, then you lose ownership. And this is actually why I think um, uh, this is the right solution to the thing Rothbard talked about, about um, uh, body inalienability. We don't homestead our bodies, so there's no way to abandon your body. That's the reason why you can't sell yourself into slavery. But something that you acquire, you can say unacquire by just undoing the conditions that, by which you acquired it. And this is my perspective, by the way. I think Hoppe agrees with it, but he didn't write on this. But he, he and I agree with each other um, pretty much on everything we've written that overlaps or that doesn't overlap, I should say. So, But I'll try to be clear in this course if people ask a question about whether it's Hoppe's view or whether I think it's his view. Well, I've got a post uh, about mutualists. Um, I think their biggest problem is, number one, their over-reliance on this Marxist idea of um, – and maybe they don't all have this – the Marxist idea of, um, of value, property value. But, but, but in, in, in substantive terms, I think their biggest problem is their, their view that you can, you can lose your property rights if you're not actually in current possession of property. Um, I would agree that you can presume some of the abandoned property in certain cases, but if you, if you leave your house for a year or two and you, you make it clear you don't want to abandon it, and, and even worse is that if you're a distant owner of an apartment building or a factory, then the workers or the tenants can just homestead it. Basically, that's not abandonment. That's, that's just the idea that you have to be in current possession of property to maintain ownership. Um, and I don't think that's a requirement of libertarianism. I think it's anti-libertarian or unlibertarian, um, um, because you could libertarianism would say you could have a contract with the tenants or with your workers by which they are currently using your property on your behalf. So you maintain your ownership that way. And there is a long blog post I did about that. Uh, just search my website or the Mises blog for um, uh, my name and something like problems with mutualist ownership or uh, mutualism and abandonment, something like that. Just search for that. You can find it if you want to search more on this. But I do think there's a lot of good insights by the mutualists and by the left libertarians. Marcos Hernandez. What do I think about Thomas Paine's theory of land that we all have a right to a small percentage of it? Well, that's Georgism, right? Owners must pay all others to obtain private ownership. Um, I disagree with that, and so does Hans, because so, so does Hoppe, because that is basically the idea that um, um, well, actually Paine was bad on a lot of things. Um, he wasn't as good as his reputation. Um, 
Anyway, that's basically based upon the idea of the Lockean proviso. The Lockean idea that um, you can only homestead land as so long as you leave enough and as good for yourself, I mean for others. Now, I will talk in another lecture about this, but Hoppe explicitly denounces um, the Lockean proviso, as does Rothbard and Anthony de, de Yasse and um, uh, most modern libertarians. They, they reject the Lockean proviso. In other words, they like Locke's homesteading idea, but they think he was wrong in his proviso, and so do I. I think he was wrong. And I think without that, you cannot get this gorgeous idea. And, and even beside that, the Georgist idea is ridiculous. It, it, it would obviously um, metastasize and be abused by a by a state. And um, you know, to be honest, at a certain point, the land is all homesteaded, and it gets mixed into the economy, and everyone benefits from having an advanced free market economy. And you know, if someone's got a large land holding and their their, their heirs can't be productive, they're going to lose it. So at a certain point in time, you know, it, it's sort of a cosine point, but at a certain point in time, it doesn't matter too much. Tito, uh, um, how do I respond to accusations of hierarchy and capitalism? I can't see how hierarchy is bad when it is incursive. Um Well, I agree with you, and this is why I am skeptical of these thick libertarians and the left libertarians who try too hard to push – what they say is the reason you're a libertarian is because you're against authority and hierarchy. And one example of that is aggression. But we should be as libertarians against other forms of hierarchy and oppression as well, like in the workforce, having a boss who tells you what to do. I mean I think it's ridiculous. I mean I, I'm more of a plumb line libertarian, so is Hoppe in this respect. I think that as long as there is no actual coercion and violence, then – Anything goes, at least politically and legally. Whether it's immoral or not is a different question. Now, there is truth to the fact that there are some undue market power by some entities because of state intervention in the past and now, and that should be gotten rid of. You know, but basically, no, I disagree with that. Okay, so uh, Stephen Davis asked a question about the boundaries above and below. I think this is called in uh, political theory and law the ad, ad colum doctrine, a c o e l u m doctrine. And um, I mean, I don't think Hoppe talks about this in particular. What he does in these cases, he, he basically reverts back to Rothbard's ideas on the relevant technological unit. So. Rothbard's idea is that there's a practical aspect. It's eight o'clock. Sorry, there's a practical aspect to um, this because there's human interaction and there's you're trying to get the consent of your fellows, and which, which is a bit about what mutualism talks about. Um, and so people are going to respect your property right to respect theirs, but it's it's a way of using property. Um, it's a way of using property productively in a way that people can recognize as a productive use of property. So Rothbard's whole discussion of the relevant technological unit is, is 
what Hoppe would fall back on. He would say you have to have some kind of cooperative uh, determination among civilized people trying to find a, a way to use property productively and peacefully to determine what the relevant technological unit is. And that would be the extent of it, up and down. Um, if, if you look at my paper I, I linked in this lecture called What Libertarianism Is, I believe I have a footnote where I link to a blog post about Rothbard's relevant technological unit. Yeah, it would be determined by common law, by custom, by negotiation, and by the legal system. That's correct. It also applies to this idea of the um, privatizing the spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum, radio waves, airwaves, where people could broadcast um, information over the EM spectrum and how that could be privatized by its nature but by with the concept of the relevant technological unit being applied to that particular resource's nature. I think it's from John. Do I think libertarian success depends upon being able to prove what they're advocating self-contradictory self or theoretically wrong? Is it hopeless to convince the vast majority that they would be likely better off? Under a libertarian property order. Well, I okay. I see. I, I see those as. Um, I think we. I think we should start cutting it off after this set of questions, because um, others are dropping out now. I think there's two questions there, Jock. Number one, um, the second question is more of a tactical question. How do you actually get people to join us? And the first one is more of a logical or an argumentative question. On the first one, I think in a way your answer is correct. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to use that strategy, but I think that – excuse me, this is compatible with the Hoppian idea of argumentation ethics, which is the idea that there is an is-ought gap. That is, you cannot prove norms or oughts from is statements. You can only prove them by going back to previous ought statements. So that means any discussion you have with a civilized person, you're going to eventually – Go back to common things you share, common norms that we all agree on, and then all you can do is say, "Listen, you're advocating this socialist policy, but it contradicts your agreement with peacefulness, with property rights that are implicit in your having this conversation with me." So, in that sense, yes, I think you're always showing them a contradiction or an inconsistency. You're saying, "Look, you're not being consistent. You got to choose. You got to either take these civilized norms that we all agree on by having." Discussion and by trying to do something well that is decent, or you have to take you know the destruction that's inherent in what you're proposing. I mean, it's one or the other. So you're trying to show people inconsistency. But as for the practical matter, my personal view is that um, um, as we become wealthier, as become as we become richer and more educated by the internet spreading things and by examples. People become gradually aware intuitively uh, of the benefits of freedom, and they become gradually more skeptical of the state, and that's what's going to do it. Whether it will or not, I can't say. I don't know. Uh, Stephen Davis, it's hard to break through people's scientific mindset. Um, oh, maybe we can address that when we get to the lecture, but it's, I find that to be very difficult too. Um, I mean, sometimes you can, you know, just point to things like, um, um, I mean, Hoppe has a great comment saying that, you know, the Popperian 
methodology itself is not subject to preparing methodology. In other words, if you say to be scientific, everything has to be tested, what about that statement itself? Is that scientific or not? If it, if it is, then how do you test it? Then you have infinite regress. If it's not, then why do we believe it? So in other words, you show that even the preparians rest upon an a priori assumption that is not testable by their mentality. So they have to admit that there's some realm of truth we can get without that. And I think, of course, you can point to the, the, um, the things I pointed to already, the law of non-contradiction. You can give them some examples um, of things that everyone knows to be true and that you contradict yourself if you deny them. Tito Warren, how do I differentiate between the status quo and actual capitalism for our critics? I define a corporation, wealth, and property for them. They still stick with declaring it as vile in the system. That, well, I know what you mean exactly. And I, what I would, what I tend to do is number one, you show that the left and the right, the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S., for example. They, they basically all favor the same corporatist, quasi-fascist, statist alliance, and that they have co-opted what we favor, which is the free market. And like I said, I don't use the word capitalist that much anymore. And in fact, I all excuse, <coughs> I will readily admit that I am happy to have the state get out of incorporating companies, and let's just have free market firms cooperate. Now, I personally think they could recreate many of the features of corporations. By, the, by, by pure contract and private property. That's Robert Hessen's view and that of Randy Barnett, I mean, sorry, um, Ray Rothbard and, and, and Roger Pallon of Cato, but primarily Robert Hessen, which I agree with. But we don't have to call them corporations. We don't have to agree that the state needs to incorporate them, give them privileges, etc. And a consequence of that would be that they, the state wouldn't have an excuse to double tax these corporations anymore either because they don't have legal personality. Let's just agree with the critics. We don't want them to have legal personality. We don't want them to be separate legal entities. We don't want them to have limited liability granted by the state. We don't want them to have any of these state charters and corporations. Just let it be a totally private mixture. Um, it's hard, though. I mean, you basically have to say that the state has co-opted it, and you can point to examples of how corporations um, um, claim to be pro-capitalism, but they use these state laws like pro-union legislation, environmentalist legislation, uh, intellectual property, patents and copyrights, um, minimum wage, and they act like they resent these things, but really they're in favor of it because it helps them to keep small companies and competitors out. So what you can do is point to how the big companies are in bed with the state, and they basically use the state's um, policies to protect them from competition from the small companies. I agree with Chuck. I use the word firm as my primary word when I can. All right, everyone's petering out now. Why don't we um, sign off for tonight, and we will start over next uh, next Monday. I enjoyed it, everybody. You're, you're a great class. Thanks, guys.